Hello and welcome to The More The Merrier with Donna G. I have an incredibly packed show for you today. Back-to-back interviews with Denise Williams-Soprano talking about her life as a Black Canadian soprano. And then you'll be hearing from Sheila Arnold, an African-American storyteller who will be here from February the 18th and is being presented by Storytelling Toronto. That will be taking place at the Arts and Letters at 14 Elm Street at 7.30, storytellingtoronto.org. Denise Williams' contact information, she also has a couple events. And for more information about that, you can go to denisewilliamssoprano.com. Enjoy the show. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G. And the spotlight today is Denise Williams Soprano. And Canada does not have a plethora of Black Sopranos that I know of. The two others that spring to mind are Portia White and Misha Bruger-Gossman. Forgive me if there are others out there. Uh, Nina Bickersteth comes to mind as well. But, you know, we need to recognize you, Denise, and the others, some of whom I know and some of many of whom are probably unknown, because this country has a history of hiding people and not validating people. And as this is Black History Month, I wanted to do uh, a spotlight on you. So Denise Williams, soprano, welcome back to The More The Merrier. You've been on before talking about other things. Hello, Donna. And I wanna say I'm so happy and honored and elated to be with you again. I love speaking with you. And I wanna thank you now in particular for for this is what you do to kind of unveil some some people, especially of the, the African diaspora, um, and unveil voices that we don't hear. And just to put it mildly, you are actually correct that we have a habit in Canada, and I'm gonna say we, because I'm in Canada here, of hiding certain um, things. And I think that the US and other places, US, Europe, even the Caribbean, very different. Um, it's easier to get known there. I just put my one foot in and all of a sudden there's sort of uh, accolades. But here it's like we hang on to just some, the people that we already know, the people that have risen for whatever reason, they've, they've sort of made um, what kind of a mark or a presence. And then they use the same people over and over and over again. The ones you mentioned, well, Portia did struggle in her time um uh, she struggled but misha fortunately and nima are are younger they're of a younger generation than i am at so i've kind of i'm in between the porsche right and exactly thing. and that's one of the reasons why i kind of have a little bit of that that old um kind of who are we are we there what a black person singing classical music um you're gonna you're gonna get beaten down from both sides of the equation i must tell you that and and this this younger generation, the emerging and sort of more established artists that are kind of can be started maybe closer to the 90s and stuff like that there, that there's a lot more um, understanding, tolerance, acceptance on both sides and both white and black. So I started by saying that. Yes. Now, um, let's start with the Antiguan young woman, girl. Um, did your love of music start as a girl or did it come later? Well, apparently it started like right from the word go. Um, I was flying from Antigua to Canada at the age of three. My parents were already here and my grandmother was bringing me over and she told me I was singing the whole way. <laughs> I was singing the whole way. Now, I don't remember any of that, but what I do remember is my mother, uh, she was a professional singer, but she loved singing. She played the piano and she loved singing and she sang and played and played music, all kinds of music, she had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of LPs and all kinds of music constantly. Again, we are colonial, um, colonial African Caribbean. 
So she played the piano as well. She was, she learned piano and uh, taught me. And then eventually I started learning from other people. So the whole idea there is that it was just part of our environment. And I would hear her sing, or I'd hear the records playing, whether it was children's records or, or all the way to, I saw something recently, the music of Beirut in her collections or whatever, or classical English or Mozart, whatever. So I would sing along. I would totally be humming and singing along and appreciating all kinds of music. Mind you, she also crazily loved the Calypso and the and the Soca and, you know, the Byron Lees and all the scars and everything like that. So we'd be singing that too and dancing that. So it's just a constant music was never not in our ears and out of our lips. So when did the classical emerge? Was that later or was it the, the gospel and the jazz that came beforehand? Um, so the classical was there, like I would say from the word go, because once again, um, even from the Antiguan roots, it was very, very strongly British. Uh, my mother is uh, a British upbringing um, back, I guess she would be in the 50s, <laughs> 40s, 50s. And she was a teacher and she studied even my grandfather was in an orchestra playing the violin in Antigua. So we have a very strong classical root, even though we have the other, the, in, the indigenous music of Antigua, let's say the Calypsos and all the other islands mm-hmm. mixed, but very, very strong classical when it comes to, like you would do that other stuff in your, you know, maybe on the Saturday night, you're gonna go out and have a, a be in a fete or something, but at home, it was the classics. Um, so I already had that understanding and I went to schools in the, oh, I just not talk about years, shall we? But anyway, we'll say that when I was uh, in senior, even junior public, senior public and high school, at the time we were always doing more classical music. So all the way through there, I was in um, an operetta, Gil- Gilbert and Sullivan in grade seven, eight. And I took to it very easy. I had an understudy of one of the lead roles. And by the time I got to high school at Jarvis Collegiate, the music teacher there was um, presenting and teaching, again, classics. So we did Mozart, we did Vivaldi, big Mozart's Requiem, Vivaldi Gloria big things and he soon very quickly recognized that i had a talent for this i could not only hear my part but i can hear a lot of other parts at the same time so i can flip between soprano and alto whenever he needed me even in the midst of the concert and um and this was very again strongly classical um he also encouraged me he had his wife as a fairly famous opera singer and she would come to the class if he said i think i've got some talent here and he would do that every year and she would come and listen and um through him dr david lowe and his wife gainer jones lowe they would offer scholarships um upon leaving high school to study and that's where it all started is I, I got this a scholarship to study at the Conservatory of Music. That's what they knew. And that's what we knew in those days as formal training. And um, it's all classics, just all the classics. So, and I was comfortable with that. My voice happened to match that very well. And my, my um, let's say my identity from the colonial, um, more than gospel because, um, gospel strongly african-american um i did visit my grandfather who lived in new york several times a, a year or something i'd visit him from time to time and he would take me to the church and um there would be a combination of the classics again and the gospel and i'd be like oh this is so cool i wish i could do that i wish i could sing that way and um but i could admire it uh but not really own it for so many reasons at the time and the crossover just wasn't in the wheelhouse at the time in the jazz and and things like that there i can also let you know that i really saw and see music as an expression so don't at the time i didn't see music as entertainment per se at the time it was great to be entertained by it 
but myself doing it was more in terms of communication, expression, um, emotional, and, and, and things like that there, and, and speaking messages more than just, well, here's a great music that I can sing for you so that you can dance to. Do you know what I mean? So that's kind of what gave me a little bit of a barrier, a little bit between some of the more contemporary music styles at the time. Um, what was it like? Um, what was it like at the conservatory? Were you the only black classical student? Do you recall? Ha 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 ha! I didn't see anybody like me. <laughs> <laughs> Does that answer your question? I didn't see anybody like me. Um, I'm even thinking in high school when I was doing all of that stuff and singing and singing so well and everything like that, at the time major um, immigration of people from the Caribbean and the States and everything, Toronto was going through a major immigration process. So I was like, oh, because I was here like a long time before then. I was like, oh, wow, more like me, more like me, more like me. But then mm -hmm. by that time, they're not really like me because I, I'm a Canadian. Do you know? I mean, like real yeah. since I was three, you know, Canadian. Uh, but going back to the conservatory when I finally got so all along, I'm thinking, yeah, I know I'm black. I can see that. But we're we're in a mosaic, right? We're in a mixture. We we have different expressions, right? Um, but no. Um, so when I got there, it's like I didn't see anybody like me and they didn't understand kind of in a way what to do. I got the scholarship, that's why I was there. But typically a person like me would not be there because of the economic limitations, if you could imagine, right? Economic, so taking a lesson in those days, like say maybe it was like $30 an hour, but that's equivalent in these days to about 120 an hour and you have to go regularly, like every week for, you know, for years. So that's often not in, um, in a lot of people who are newly immigrant or people of color. And for so many reasons, not to mention, um, not to mention that it's not just the singing lessons when you're, it was only classical time. It's not just the singing lessons, but the ability to understand the Western music style of um so the, the treble clefts and the and the these kind of things which fortunately i'm going to say fortunately for me i had that since i was young you know from my mother and my mother's you know helped us with music lessons and and, and i also trained with some composers in toronto so and i also did the formal theory and all that stuff even in high school, like I was in grade 10 doing my theory at RCM and doing my piano and piano lessons. So fortunately for me, when I did get to the conservatory, I belonged for that aspect. But I kind of did feel something, I was beginning to feel something missing. Of course, I was only 19, 20, but I couldn't put my finger on exactly what was going on. And I didn't thrive well in those years there. I didn't, I did okay. And I did excellent on my exams, my singing exams, but the weekly um, lessons and everything, I felt horrible. I felt that I, I might not have been understood. My teacher didn't even know what type of range I, I sang. She didn't see me as a soprano even. Um, and, Why was and that, Denise? because my voice was not typical in that you know I, I, and i say this i said it to an, a student just a moment ago i have taught hundreds of students and i can hear i try to hear characteristics in everybody's voice that are it's very unique and you can't um it's not like training a piano you're trying to train the voice even if you're trying to train two people the same piece there's characteristics of their voice that are a little different so what was going on there, and I now realize is that since I was young, because I was very good in music, I was put to sing harmony, because if you know how it is, if you, 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 you can sing the harmony, if you're good, and if you can't sing the harmony, then you're singing soprano. And if you can't 
match a tune you're not in the choir right that's the way it was so I was singing low and also I had a naturally low voice not sort of say low voice a wide range because I was singing everything I sang low I sang alto I listened I sang everything so that by the time I went to the RCM um, I had a range which by the way is very typical of people of color very typical and black people in particular range I had a range I can go really low which is sopranos that she would know couldn't go low. And she figured, well, like she can go high too, but if she can go low, let us market this black woman. <laughs> um, low, how many of us are, how many are there, are there in classical music, just like kind of music theater styles at the time, you know, if you're dark, you're probably not gonna get the ingenue anyway, if you know what I mean, right? Mm -hmm. You're not gonna do that. So there's a typecasting, there's a lack of understanding. My voice was rich because of my ethnic background. So it felt it that it shouldn't be high. It should be more in the low end or the middle end. They call it the mezzo. And so there was a mistaken characterization which was traveling in and out my, my history as a, as a teacher, in and out, in and out, in and out, with various teachers until I finally found um, a couple of teachers that really helped me through it. Um, one was a black woman herself, Joyce Britton from um, Jamaica originally, but then went to Juilliard and studied classically. And she understood what was going on. She said, this sounds like what happened to me. <laughs> and um, that's interesting. Very interesting, right? She says, this happened to me in Jamaica. I was like, Jamaica's mezzo-soprano because it's so rich. And then when she got to um, Juilliard and found a really good teacher, was like, no, this is where you are, my dear. So it caused me, and the other one is a, a teacher, uh, Dr. Michael Warren, that I worked with way back in uh, the 90s, back in the 90s. And I still work with him from time to time, but back it was back then when he said, hello, <laughs> stop whatever you are doing. This is you. This is your voice. You're a coloratura hi and there's this is where you need to be and i was actually banging myself out at the time um in the wrong place wrong repertoire you're not that good uh because you don't sound like this how could we can't be louder da, 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 da. so when i finally found the route the right range it was like freedom and it was happy and it was like i was starting to sail in a few a few things i did of course you know by then i'm already in my 30s which is very much like Portia White's story, just, you know, late bloomer, late, late bloomer because of just not being identified properly, mm -hmm. um, if you know what I mean. And um, so with that, that's that's what it took is to, and I guess Dr. Warren, because he was in the States and was very, very much um, um, used to more color there and, and had a very good ear, you know what I mean? Um, but I'll say one more thing before we move on is that we, you talked about me being comfortable with the um, more contemporary styles of an offshoots like jazz and, and gospel. And it's really funny that I had a friend, I still, we haven't speak, spoken for a long time, but her name is Julie Michaels, if I may say the name. And she's a singer, white woman, hair as blonde as ever, which sometimes she just sort of tints it red, but blonde as ever, about my size actually. But the difference between Julie and I, we will always laugh. Julie was really, and she's around still. I don't know what she's doing now, but at the time we were together, jazz, belter, gospel, big time. So we would be standing together and people would just assume that this is the gospel, Denise is the gospel singer and Julie is the classics or whatever. It was completely the other way around and we admired each other. And it just so happened that she, lived in new york for quite a long time and worked with gospel choirs sang with gospel choirs and and in those kind of things and and it was something that i'd always wanted to do i said okay now i got the classics of the way which i love i'm not going to lo lose it but let me get let me go to the source let me go to the states and let me like get in a choir and get that down and be able to the riff and do all this shit. do it do it do it well i never got the opportunity i'm a single parent 
you know, they're old now, but no, I never got the opportunity to do that. Motherhood does impede some things, um, unfortunately for women that don't impede men. Um, yeah. So that is just a, that is just a fact of life and, and still is. Um, where did Kathleen Battle come into your life? I was singing with an orchestra um, in Peterborough and I don't remember what it was, but I was introduced to this orchestra. I was singing with a choir called the, <laughs> I sang with the Polish, this Polish choir. And anyway, the director um, uh, asked me to sing this in, in Peterborough, which I did. It's quite a while back. And in the credits, in the, in the editorial, in the paper, it said um, Canada's Kathleen Battle or something to that effect. Uh, Canada's Kathleen or Kathleen Battle, some some reference to that. So there was a reference to that in the way I sang, and then several times over, um, other people have said you've got this silvery quality about your voice, this silvery quality, and it is sort of like this, you know. And it's it is important for singers to understand that although we're not the same, what voices are close to yours and especially if they're good and they are um, doing very well, what is making them do well? And, and does that fit you and how you can incorporate some of that? So there's, there's that. So I listened and I thought, and it said many times, Kathleen, not the same, but very similar quality, not Jesse Norman as much, Barbara Hendricks, maybe, maybe not in between, but so I listened some more and especially to spirituals of Jesse's and Kathleen and Barbara Hendricks because spirituals once again were not in my natural um, arena when I started singing. People assume you're black and you can do everything that's black and that's not the case. Uh, so Joan, jo Joyce Burton, the same teacher who's American said, Denise, yes, I'm from the Caribbean too. And, and I studied at Juilliard, but she says, what well, a time I got to 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 Europe, they said, okay, great, great, great. We love your Mozart, beautiful voice and the handle, by the way, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now where are your spirituals? <laughs> and she said, okay. So she realized that she was she would be carrying the torch for that Afrocentric music, that Afrocentric classical spiritual root music. And so she said, you've got to learn this and you've got to learn how to do it. So I would then start listening and, you know, Battle and Norman and everything like that. Okay, so that that was an era. And then when I joined the, and I used Kathy a lot of, I love classics, as you know, so a lot of the opera arias and, and art songs and keys and various things like that, I began to kind of incorporate with what Kathleen and other people like her with that type of voice did. And it really worked. My, again, oh, the one that was in New York, the Michael Warren said, also said that Denise, whenever you sing a spiritual, like, you know, people shouldn't touch that because your voice is very free. I guess I'd studied this so much. Your voice is very free. And of course, the spiritual speaks to me in so many ways, the, the coded language of it and the, the hope and the faith. And so he says, can you, can you try to get there with your opera and your classic songs and arias and just kind of free it up? Just forget about what you learned in our western in our western way of delivering it to you and get some of that afrocentric spirituality into you well i did that so when i joined the nathaniel deck corral now i'm coming to coming battle i joined the nathaniel i was asked to join to sing i was part of what we call the uh, we call them the founding members of this professional group that's dedicated to perform Afrocentric music of various styles, classics and various other styles. And I was very happy to be there because I had given up singing in choirs, not given up. I decided, well, I needed to free my voice and I didn't really, I couldn't get it, go much further with the, so, but for, for the reason that the Afrocentric material is very different and had that same idea, the spiritual and even classical works were just flow differently it fit and I could just whatever, you know, the, my spirit and everything and it fit. And also a lot of us at the time were black roots, black roots and our voices kind of our everything kind of fit this, the, the thing. Anyway, so here it comes. There's a concert um, with Kathleen Battle and the Nathaniel Deck Corral. 
in 2000, somewhere around there. So a few years ago, <laughs> and um, Kathleen, you know, sh she was going to be not delayed, but she wasn't going to come arrive um, in time for the first uh, orchestral rehearsal. So uh, Brainerd asked, they probably said, is there anybody in the choir that can just sing these pieces so that with the orchestra, so that the orchestra gets a chance to rehearse them with a the singer. So he asked me to do it and I thought, okay, great. Um, I can totally do this. And I looked at the pieces, they were her pieces, but I said, shit, here's a test. I've been, I've been listening to her and doing these pieces. Do I ever know these pieces? You know, couldn't hear nobody pray, Lord, I couldn't hear nobody pray and some other pieces like that. I went, holy crap, this is amazing. I do it with the chorus, it's so much fun. I really just did it. And then, and then there was one piece called, I forget the name of the piece, but I thought, I don't see Kathleen Battle doing this piece. I don't know how she's going to, why she decided to do this one. Everything seemed to fit. I thought this one, I thought, well, let's see. So sure enough, Kathleen Battle comes oh, through. She comes to our first Nathaniel Dett choir rehearsal because one of the pieces she is going to be singing with us. And after hearing us and everything like that and going through, um, and now we're at one of the rehearsals at the theater, at the, uh, the, the hall, and she says, you, you, she points to me, and she says, you, could you kindly, and she didn't know that I had sung her works before, before she came, but she said, could you kindly sing that particular duet with me? I'll sing the first verse, you sing the second verse, and all of this kind of stuff. She asked me to sing with her out of this, all this section. I went, wow. This is great, and I knew what to do, and uh, and she even told Brainerd in that piece and some other pieces we did. She said, "He said, follow her, <laughs> follow her. <laughs> She's got the style. <laughs> follow her in the spiritual." So I was like, "Wow, this is incredible," and I guess what had happened is because I I emulated the whole idea and the spirit, and even when she sang with the orchestra they had the right phrasing and everything like that. She did the phrasing that way. So, and she also, and then all of a sudden the day we came and she said, oh, we're not doing this particular piece. I forget what it's called, Go Tell on the Mountain. We're not doing Go Tell on the Mountain. And that was the very one I said, I just don't see her doing that. <laughs> and- um, So you so were that, right. I was right. It, was <laughs> it didn't off. fit. It did not fit. I, I was struggling with it when we did it. And I thought it did. I managed through because of my voice is not the same. But I thought, no, this is Jesse Norman's piece. This is not a Kathleen battle. And she dropped it. And so there's a lot of politics and everything going on there. Anyway, we did the concert. She she turned around and gave me the ovation. Like the audience was clapping for the piece that she did, but we did it together. So she turned around and gave me the ovation. And I stupidly, not to be an idiot, but I turned around and thought, who is she turning to? I turned my head and thought, is there somebody behind me? And it was oh my actually me. <laughs> idiot, eh? Oh my gosh, she was not used to that. She was actually me. And at the end of the day, she got these gorgeous, gorgeous two-toned red and gold um, or red roses with a gold, huge bouquet of roses. And she gave me the bouquet. Wow. She gave me the bouquet. I still have one of those, one of those roses sitting, like one of them, the bouquet kind of went to bed, but you know, one of them sitting, I have a corner in my home that, that just all about inspirational things so i still have that one rose and she gave me the bouquet and then we took pictures i have pictures of that with her and i and she said you know you're really you know very good i hope this helps you get a little bit more presence and stuff going down i hope this helps you um in your career and um and we we connected a couple of maybe one or two times just in an email or something but obviously she's then off and she's like who are you do you know what i mean but but i mean it was a great experience and i guess that's my my feeling and connection with uh with miss battle at the time you know what a wonderful opportunity um for you you know to to gain some confidence in yourself Yes, that's a good way to put it. It, it, it. That's what it was taking. It, it was the confidence. It was in my head. 
that I should have it, but it wasn't yet in my spirit and I hadn't had enough accolades at the time to see that happen, you know? But my life is kind of like that. I, I guess it's these windows, small windows open of opportunity, small windows that others might be able to pry those windows open and, and go. But for me, the little windows, they would open. I would go, wow, and everybody's saying, wow. And then they kind of shut again. And then another five, six years, I'd open a little bit and shut. So that's my kind of life, these ebbs and flows that I've, I've grown to accept. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've totally grown to accept it. This is the way it is. And yes, I, I um, been a single parent and uh, my boys are older now, but you know how it is. You're always a parent. There's always things that are needed to support them emotionally, psychologically, vocationally. And I want to be more stable than running around all over the world. And I also want to own a home. So I own a home. And I just think that in Toronto, which is that's that's part of what I sacrificed is sort of digging, getting more um, what we call risk taking in um, in the arts. But but I've certainly done, I feel I've I'm satisfied, let's put it that way, with what I've done. I've done some pretty cool things and even gotten out of the country and and planning, not done, doing, I'm going to say doing. And as I grow, there's cooler and cooler things. And I've used my art of creativity, my my creative artistic self, rather than think, oh, I've got to audition for this, or why didn't I get that gig or that gig or that gig? You know, why am I not doing this and this? Hey, hello, everybody. I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Remember me. I'm here. So instead of doing that, I kind of just create my own things and I create my programs and and um, do the research and create the programs and then just maybe sing them somewhere. So maybe the first few times, yeah, I'm taking money out of my pocket. But um, this one program that I have coming up, I actually did get an Ontario Arts Council grant for my very first an Ontario Arts, Arts Council grant. And I thought, okay, you are doing, <laughs> you have not given up, you still do, you know yourself, you know what you can do, you make your choices, not everything you go for, but you can do. And you've done. And I've done. And on that note, Denise Williams-Soprano, thank you very much. Thank you, Donna. Really appreciate that. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. And as promised, my guest, Sheila Arnold, is here to talk about an event that is going to be happening on February the 18th at the Arts and Letters Club. It's presented by Storytelling Toronto and is a story fusion cabaret concert in honor of Black History Month. And Sheila Arnold, some of the little ones might know her as Miss Sheila. She's joining us to talk about sweat. Sheila, welcome to Toronto. Welcome to CIUT. Thank you. I'm glad, glad to have this opportunity to talk with you. So this interview came together rather quickly, but um, I was happy to Columbus you, as I like to say, uh, meaning uh, I discovered you, even though you were already there. (laughs) So um, you have done uh, different types of storytelling, and I saw some of your YouTube clips, and you speak to the little ones about diversity, and you speak to the big ones as well about, you know, love and marriage. I I especially appreciated the, you know, the story you told about um, your parents. And um, so how long have you been storytelling? Did you start as a little kid just making up stories? Definitely start as a little kid making up stories, but also at our kitchen table, we would always uh, have time where stories were shared across the table. And my parents did that, you know, first off. And then as we started going to school, we were expected to chime in with what our day was like as well. Um, So I've been really privileged to have that. Uh, But yes, I wrote stories when I was a little kid. I I told stories. Um, When I had my son, I started doing, uh, he's 36 years old now. So for 36 years, I, for for a long time, I was just telling stories um, wherever he was, whatever school he was in, whatever after school program, whatever. And then 20 years ago, literally 20 years ago this year, I stepped out and became a full-time storyteller. Ah, congratulations on your anniversary. I know. 
So I uh, was born in Jamaica and was there until I was eight. So I was just introduced to the oral tradition naturally with uh, Br'er Rabbit stories and Anansi stories. Um, what type of stories were you sharing around your kitchen table as, as a young girl? Um, really, they were they were not stories of Br'er Rabbit or any other stories. They were just personal stories. Uh, the day, the family, what, you know, just stories from the past, history stories, a lot of history stories. My dad is a history buff. My mom likes history as well, or liked history as well. <clears throat> so um, a lot of it was just personal stories. Um, but as I, but I read a lot, that was a big deal in our house. So the first stories I really started telling, the stories I started um, sharing were just made up stories because I was reading a lot of books. So I would create stories, you know, some of them around, you know, like what the books were like, but just, you know, I read, I knew I could read lots of stories that were different. So I figured I could tell lots of stories. Uh, when you just curious, when you were little, did your parents like, if when they had gatherings, did they like trot you out and say, Sheila has a story that she'd like to share? <laughs> well, uh, they did once I started learning Paul Lawrence Dunbar. So um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the Af uh, African-American 18th, uh, 19th century, um, early 19th century poet, uh, and so short story writer, uh, just when I found him, my mom introduced me to him when I was a little baby, literally. And once I started doing his poetry, then it was like, yes, we can trot you out. Um, but I was also in a family of trot outs. <laughs> uh, my sister, really great word. My cousins, my first cousins were singers and musicians and they were, and they are amazing. So by the time I was by the time I was ten years old, we were doing performances together where they were doing the singing and the music music side of it, and I was being the MC, and then every now and then telling a story or a poem during that. So that's really we were out, you know, young doing that. And what made you decide to step out onto the stage and um, and share beyond uh, your family in a more professional manner? Well, when I got hired at Colonial Williamsburg, which is a uh, one of the largest um, historical museums that has you know original buildings, outdoor historical uh, museum, and it just um, allowed me to be in character for one, as well as allowed me to tell different kinds of stories. I was I had to tell 18th century stories there, so that was a a big move for me. And as people were, as I was coming along with my son, people were like, can you tell a story that's a folktale? I'm like, okay, what's a folktale? And I go find what a folktale was and find a story. Um, so I was reading those kind of books and um, 398.2 from the Dewey, Dewey Decimal System in the library. And so I was reading some of those and that's when I started to do um, more of those as well. When my son was around and invited to his school and trying to keep in touch with what the teachers liked. Um, and you're, you're, Sheila, them. you're such a geek. You know the Dewey Decimal number. <laughs> 398.2. And then and I make sure that when I'm with kids, they know it by the time they finish. <laughs> I was a library geek too, so I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, and as a as a library geek, you'll understand as a kid, I was a talker in the classroom, which meant that if I finished my week work early, I was talking to whoever was finished or not finished with their work or the teacher depending on you know, <laughs> what I can do. So teachers learn real quickly to send me someplace. And so they generally sent me to the library, you know, like go to the library, the library wants to see, you know, come in and, and be like, they said you wanted to see me and she just roll her eyes. Like, why is this child here? You know, again, stuff to do in the library. They said, <laughs> go shelve books. And so I am, and I know this is going to be hard for y'all to believe, but I am an undercover shelver of books. I am the person that will go in the library and go through the stacks of the books and just for fun, make sure they are stacked correctly and in right order. Sheila, I do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I made a librarian mad one day when I brought over a book and said, I was just looking, you know, and I, I saw this book on hair and it's in the area with the war. I don't think they're the same thing. She said, why did you move it? And I was like, it's a book on hair. This section is war. <laughs> Colonial Williamsburg is not yeah. something that um, we have up here. So yeah. for that and telling 18th century stories, were you primarily focused on African-American stories? Yes, actually, we were primarily focused on that. 
Uh, we had wonderful historians at, uh, at Colonial Williamsburg. And so they had done research on the stories of that time. So we were given a huge list of stories to choose from. Um, most of them African-American, but some of them not. Some of them Scots-Irish stories uh, that had come over. Uh, some of them English stories that had come over. Um, sometimes biblical stories, because of course they were there as well. Um, but we didn't tell as many of those. Okay. So it was, you know, yeah, it was kind of interesting. And you sometimes tell stories from different parts of the world. Around the world in stories. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this uh, event that's happening, there's several events that are happening. Let's start with the one that's happening on the on February the 18th. Okay. And um, you're, you're back in Toronto, present the world premiere of Sweat. Tell us about Sweat. Sweat was written by Zora Neale Hurston, who's a Harlem Renaissance writer, or is known best as a Harlem Renaissance writer. It's one of her early stories, and it's a compelling story. Um, it's a story that is often now taught in school. It wasn't taught in school when I was in school, um, even though, of course, it's much older than I am. Um, but now it's taught more often. There's so much. Uh, her wording is just, just beautiful. And the story itself is rather haunting in a lot of ways. So, um, but it's it's almost a revelation story to the, for this person. And for me, it's also a story about how we treat one another. Um, so this story is um, it, it's it's a it's an absolutely gorgeous written piece of work. And I was encouraged about ten to twelve years ago to actually portray this story or to tell this story because I portray Zora Neale Hurston as one of the women I portray in history. So I have 13 women in history I portray. Zora happens to be one of them. And so I I was like, oh, okay, I'll check it out. And I read the story and went like, no. <laughs> I'm like, this is a hard story. I can't do that. And I couldn't at that time. But then I went through some hard things and it was really interesting um, that I started to say, hmm, I might need to look at this story again. And yeah, I came some some things you can only do with with age. You can only do them with age. But yeah. then I came to Toronto because I knew there was something missing. Every time I got into the story, I was missing music, and I just started actively looking for music with this, knowing not knowing if I would ever use the music. But for some reason, I couldn't do my work in story without song in connection, and that sometimes happens. And I, I trust when my uh, I trust what my artistic stuff says, there's a way you need to learn this. And for me, the way for this story required some music, some blues specifically. And I, I was stuck. I could not find any blues that really matched where I was at with the story, where the story was at with me, but I knew I needed it. I come to Toronto. One of the guys who's, I'm at the Toronto Storytelling Festival, and one of the guys who's uh, doing our, our, audio and uh while we're there is he comes up he said have you heard ever heard of big mabel i'm like no he said oh my gosh you have to hear and i heard one song he showed me one song and i'm like that's it that's this woman that is the story and immediately everything i heard from then on i knew was sweat coming out um it was literally the story helping me find the music helping me find the story and so to be asked to do this as a story fusion with John Campbell, he's a wonderful, wonderful musician, is absolutely perfect. It's not even something I would have originally done, although I knew that music was important to it. I wouldn't have asked somebody. So actually to be able to do it in the way that I believe the story needs to be told is powerful for me. How did you collaborate via Zoom meeting? Because you're in different countries, right? Yes, we are. (laughs) It has been through Zoom meetings. And uh, John is just such an incredible um, pianist. He's, he's got a sense of, of space and time and he can, feel the, he can feel the texture of what's being said. It's, it's just lovely. And there would be times that I would say something and he would start to play and I'd be like, I'd be ready to cry, ready to stop the whole story because he picked the right thing. You know, he picked the right motifs in his music. It just comes across well. So this is going to be a, a presentation that is going to highlight his um, his musicality, his uh, emotion throughout the story as well. And what he sees from me, or at least what he's told me, is that he really loves seeing the story come out of me and how it comes out and the cadence with which it comes out. 
Um, and it's a story, Donna, honestly, truthfully, it's a story I can't tell like the written word. The written word is absolutely gorgeous, but it does not go with storytelling um, it, it, because it, it is much more difficult to actually use every single word when you're actually telling it as a story because there are so many things I can just act as, you know, my face can change rather than have you say, and her face changed, you know, I yeah. hear, you know, he looked trunkedly, trunk, whatever that word is, crazy word. And I was like, what in the world does that mean? And, you know, he just, he, he looked, he was pouting basically. Well, I'm not going to say that word. I, I mean, it's a great word when you're writing. It's an awful word when you are storytelling. Mm -hmm. I can just pout. Right. right. Because <laughs> when, yeah, when you're reading, it's, internal and when you're a storyteller it's external yes. so sometimes uh when you speak the words they sound differently yes you know so you you have to do that and mm -hmm. um i'm glad the music came to you and uh, you've got john campbell mm -hmm. along uh for this ride now uh getting back to to you and your work okay um why did you decide uh to you're the co-founder and artistic director of artists standing strong together yes um why did you decide to to co-partner in that and how did that come about um myself and donna washington uh, an amazing storyteller lives here in, uh, in the united states in north carolina and is also an author uh, she and i were watching as our friends um mostly storytellers but artists of various kinds as our friends were experiencing 2020 and the loss of everything in so many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was, you know, all your, all your business was gone in moments. And, you know, for me, it was three days uh, or not even three days, but uh, $11,000 in 48 hours, you know, and just gone. It's just like, I don't know where that's going to come from, you know? Um, and there were so many friends and even friends that were, as despondent to start to think about or even muse about, you know, what is the purpose of living? So we came together at the uh, Women's National Storytelling Festival, the last festival for, for a while. Uh, and, and we came together um, and we started talking and we decided, you know, we're just going to bring people together. We're going to find people to encourage each other and we're going to be a community for each other and, and bring people in. And that's what we did. So March 16th, 2020, we had our first Monday meeting at five, four o'clock PM and had about 70 people or so there and just shared whatever we could, brought in people to be encouraging, to share about PPP, about the pandemic, the money you know you could apply for, about the pandemic itself. You know, we thought we were something, we were so not nothing. Uh, but we were, but we brought people together. You were doing and, something. But we were doing something, and that literally is the word. We were doing something. Um, and so we brought people together and people were like, well, we want to do this again. It's like, well, we'll be here next Monday, four o'clock till 5.30. You can come. We have been meeting every Monday since then, except for the United States Memorial Day and United States um, uh, Labor Day. And we've met every Monday and we still meet. And we, from there, we just began to grow. People wanted to do programming. We started doing online programming. People wanted a Storytellers Relief Fund. We created that. Um, and we didn't create it by ourselves. We said, if you want to do something and you mention it, you got to be willing to do the work. And people did. And we started doing workshops online. And then we started a youth mentoring program, which is absolutely phenomenal because it is international. We have students and mentors from 17 different countries. Um, Very impressive. It's extraordinarily impressive. And I'm not saying that because I worked with, I'm saying it because this is what people did. This is what people stepped into when given the opportunity to make a change. COVID was difficult, but COVID also created some things in, um, for example, your organization that came about because of COVID and, you know, artists being stronger together. Amen. That's, that's, that's fantastic. What, what COVID has taken and also, and also given yes. um, to us. Yes. On Sunday, February 19th, you have a professional development workshop. Well, it's called Folk Tales, Fairy Tales, and Social Justice. And social justice is a, a huge area for me. It's when I have a deep, um, uh, a deep core in telling stories that, um, that linger in uh, or that are about social justice or linger around the edges of it. Um, I believe storytelling is the way to actually present issues of social justice um, because people can be 
um, brought into stories uh, about social justice easier than someone just coming up to them oftentimes and kind of saying, this is what we need to do. And folktales and fairy tales are a great way to catch people off guard and actually teach these. So I'm gonna be teaching that. I'm gonna add a little bit more this time because I've taught it once before um, in the area, but I'm gonna add a little bit more of the presentation. So there'll be much more time to actually do some things and uh, stand up and do things, be in partnership with people to create some stories that they can walk out the door with um, okay. around whatever their issue is, you know, that they might wanna come in with or not come in with and just play. I mean, I started doing this. I started it with environmentalists that were like, how, how do we tell this story? And I was like, well, you just do this. And they were like, just do this. You know, <laughs> and they, and they just had no idea. And I'm, so then I had to learn how to break down what I was saying. To them. Yeah. And then, and then I've worked with activists and now it's, it's, it's not just for storytellers. Storytellers are one of the many people that can use this, but anyone who's an activist can use this to make their story better, to get beyond the, the fog that keeps people insulated from right. Them. Right. And then on family day here, Monday, February the 20th, uh, you're doing African stories. Motherland comes home. What does motherland comes home mean? Uh, it was a title that I picked a long time ago to describe African stories. That's really not anything fancy. So um, <laughs> what you learn as an artist is like, they say, we need a title and you can't just say it's African stories. They'll say, well, what's the title? I'm like, Motherland comes home. And they go, okay, great. And that's how we got that title. So I probably shouldn't be telling people that that's not, you know, really just a reality. Uh, you know, if you ask me for a title, I'll find something. I'll give you something. Um, <laughs> and what can people expect in that section? Um, it's it's going to be stories that are from Africa, from different parts of Africa. Um, uh, and then also a discussion. I usually uh, focus on one country also specifically and share uh, stories, songs, proverbs, um, and information about that one country. And then we usually end at the end with an African dilemma tale that the audience gets to participate in. Oh, ah, they nice. are so wonderful. Oh, they are very nice. It changes people's ability to think uh, when they get to do uh, the dilemma tales. Um, and it's something that we really need to do more of in our countries all around the world. So. And uh, Zora Neale Hurston makes another appearance, yeah. Tales from the Perspective of Zora. Yeah, uh, that's probably, probably not the best way to describe that. But um, so, uh, yeah, I'm supposed to be in character, I think, is what I'm supposed to be doing in character of her. So it's more about her life. There'll be a couple of stories she tells, but it's more about her life uh, and the life. So she had a, um, she died in poverty and she died um, almost forgotten, uh, really forgotten and did not get found, quote unquote, again, until Alice Walker uh, found, had read the, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And, yeah. So she's she's got a wonderful story and she was um, very much, her and I would have gotten along well and also gotten on each other's nerves um, because she was just, she would just think something go, oh, let's go out and find that out was a lover of story. Oh, just a lover of story. Yeah, I remember reading um, Alice's book when she went hunting for Zora Neale, um, you know, and she wouldn't relent. Um, so that's how I discovered uh, Zora Neale, too, um, back in the day when, you know, I was looking for Black representation. And so often back then it was primarily American. Now it's changing. We're getting yes. in, in Canada, we're... Uh, yes unveiling more of our own uh, Canadian history here now. Mm. So uh, this is your second time in Toronto. Yes. And uh, how, what do you, what do you think about our city? And, you know, oh, I was only thankful that I had a ticket already purchased to go home else I would have never left. Really? I really was. And there, let me be very clear with people. I love, I live in Hampton, Virginia which is near Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Virginia. I live near the water. I love where I live. Very, very, very few things I ever have gone, huh, that would be nice. I mean, there's really only one and that's the inner harbor of Baltimore. And so I don't really, I don't think of ever living anyplace else. And I got to Toronto and went, oh, I'm in absolute love. And I loved the space that you all have, the spaces for parks, 
the spaces for walking. I love the kindness of people, the diversity in your town, the diversity of people, the diversity of, 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 of language, the diversity of, of people who are together. It's wonderful to see uh, not interracial couples. They would be like, you know, multiracial, whatever identities that were all together. Just wonderful. I love the acceptance of people. The food in Toronto is off the chain. Um, the, the, the openness about art and just putting art in places for people to hear and see and for places that people can just come in and be invited in to, you know, to come off the street and go someplace and hear music and listen to music or be a part of that music. Um, it was just, uh, I, I am just in love with it. Um, and really, it's just, it, it, there's something about that, that city that is just, it makes me want to come again and again to the point where I, I went to the storytelling festival because I was invited to be a part of it, but is now on my list to go to at least a portion of the storytelling festival every year from now on um, because it, it's, it has drawn my heart that much. It's nice to hear about Toronto from you know an outsider's uh, perspective. Because, you know, some, when you live here, you see the problems. Yep. And sometimes it's nice to be reminded, you know, uh, what's good about uh, mm -hmm. the city that you live in. So before we before we end up, I just want to uh, throw out some of the historical women um, that whose roles you play. Mm -hmm. You can't list all 13, I know, in the time we have, but just throw some of the names out okay. that people might know. Uh, One Judge, who was the personal maidservant of Martha Washington, who ran away in the last year of George Washington's presidency and uh, lived uh, in a free state uh, until her death at 74 years of age. Extraordinary story. And she is now being applauded and lauded uh, for her just bravery of running and staying gone um, and uh, just extraordinary. Um, and then Madam C.J. Walker, who is considered the first female, first African-American female uh, millionaire. And I say considered because there's the, always debate, uh, but she's an amazing woman. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a voting rights activist in the 1960s, um, who suffered severe abuse uh, for wanting to help people to be uh, able to vote um, and yet never turned to hate. She was clear, she was lot, you know, she was clear and she was truthful but she never turned to hate and absolutely opposed that level of what a response should be. These are incredible women. I like women who aren't as well known. Okay. Um, what's the, what's the most recent one that you added? That uh, the most recent added would yeah, be to your... Fannie Lou Hamer. Okay. A while. So I, I don't add on a willy nilly thing at, anymore. And I actually take people out more now than I do. Um, because I'm getting asked to do more historical commission pieces um, mm -hmm. and, and to storytelling, not necessarily in character, but to take the take the research and you get all this research and gather, 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 and turn that research into a story that can be told for an area or, um, you know, whatever reason that it needs to be done. And that has become more of what I'm doing now than I am the historic characters. Uh, can we end on an affirmation, please? Yes. <laughs> heard some of my affirmations, I suppose. <laughs> Let's do it. Amen. Well, as I tell everybody, affirmations, um, affirmations means saying something good about yourself. And you need to say something good about yourself every single day. And I say this to young people, but I also very much mean us that get older, that we forget to say good things to ourselves, And we instead replace that good things to ourselves with all the doubts and the fears and the concerns. And we all need to have good things. So affirmations every day. So you can repeat after me, Donna, here we go. I am wonderful. I am wonderful. Now I want you to hear Donna. Donna had that smile in her voice. I can't see her, but I can see that smile in her voice. And some of you all said it and you did not smile because you don't believe it yet. You don't believe what you are. And here's the deal. You got to fake it till you make it, baby. All right. So when you say I am wonderful, when you say this, you smile and you believe it for just a second. So here we go. I am wonderful. I am wonderful. I am marvelous. I am marvelous. I am phenomenal. I am phenomenal. If I were you. If I were you. I'd miss me too. I would miss me too. I'm all that. I am all that. And a bag of Skittles. And a bag of Skittles. 
skittles. <laughs> Look at me. Look at me. I'm a masterpiece. I'm a masterpiece. I am so bright. I am so bright. You need your Ray-Bans on. You need your Ray-Bans on. I am. I am. Bold. Bold. And I am. I am. So smart. So smart. I listen to Donna G. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sheila, it is been a pleasure to meet and talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. And um, I'm sure the audience is now feeling so much better about themselves. <laughs> Hope to see some of y'all at the performance on the 18th or anytime while I'm in town. And please make sure you come up and say hi. <laughs>